0: You're listening to Sproadcast, a podcast for people interested in pregnancy, birth, infant feeding and early parenting. Sproggcast is presented by Mark Harris and Karen Hall and sponsored by Pinter and Martin. Welcome to the long, hot summer edition of Sprogcast, or episode 40, as it is also known. We've got an interview for you today with Heather Trickey, researcher at Decipher, talking about some work they've done recently looking at how health messages around alcohol in pregnancy are disseminated and interpreted. I'm Karen Hall. He's Mark Harris.
1: Hello. Sprogcast is brought to you by our sponsor, Pinter & Martin, an independent publishing company specialising in pregnancy, birth and parenting, psychology, nutrition, yoga, and fiction. And you'll find them at pinterandmartin.com. Uh, we also now collect sponsorship at patron.com slash where you can sign up for badges, t-shirts, and other rather exciting rewards. In fact, Karen, I'm looking forward to people signing up for that monthly uh, Google Hangout or Zoom Hangout. Uh, Because I've got loads of stuff I want to talk to people about. And we've just put a
0: thing on Patreon, which is an interview, which um, Ellie Durant from um, Ellie the Secret Midwife um, interviewed me and Mark. Oh, yeah. About the origins of Sprogcast and what we've learned along the way. And we've put that on Patreon as well. So anybody who pays a pound, a pound, a dollar, dollar um, has access to that extra.
1: I listened to it uh, yesterday and you know, our, our commitment to production quality wasn't the same as this show, but uh, a, a very uh, interesting interview, I think, looking back on it. Uh, yeah. And when I heard it back, um, you know, I got moved again because I remember I cried in that interview. Yeah. Um, and I felt I felt the power again of Mars Lord's uh, interview. So well worth a listen. And um, Ellie has some interesting stuff to contribute as well. I I, I found that a really good, free-ranging conversation.
0: Yeah, it was a super conversation. I really enjoyed doing it. And you're right about the sound quality. It was uh, more tricky doing three people than it is doing two people, Definitely. basically. Definitely. And,
1: and you left in stuff that I know for sure from experience that you wouldn't have left in a show. Yeah, so <laughs> thanks. Hey, how are you? I'm um,
0: doing okay. I'm um, having a, a quiet-ish week, which is rather nice.
1: Ooh. Before the summer holidays?
0: Yeah, they're fairly quiet actually. I'm probably not working anything like as much in the holidays. Well,
1: that's nice. But just, you got your, just you, can't really. But you've got your son around. Yeah. That's nice. I like that. I, I like it when my boy is home.
0: Yeah, we've got lots of nice things planned. How about you, Mark? How are you?
1: Me, well, I, I am pleasantly, enjoyably busy. I've got lots, lots going on. Good stuff. Uh, Birthing Awareness, the publishing company that uh, I've started, publishes its first book on August the 2nd. So that's been quite a a fast turnaround. Mm. The author's been writing the book for nine years, effectively. And uh, it feels like the right time for her to get it out there. So what's that? Finley's Footsteps. Oh, yeah. So that's been going on. Uh, I've been doing Rewind, uh, Man 3 process trainings. I was in London last week. Uh, I'm at Leicester University today, uh, Demontford University, talking to students. They're plenty busy. Mm. Yeah, that's and good. And camping in between.
0: Well, yeah, this is a great time of year for camping, isn't it?
1: Ah, uh, especially when the weather's like this. I had a bandana um, suntan line. <laughs> nice. <laughs> which is not a good look. It looks like you could actually... Uh, it looks like the top of my head is separated from the bottom, like you could kind of crank like, it open. Like an eggshell. Yeah, thank you very much. <laughs> Humpty Dumpty with a beard, that's all I'm saying. But I would like I would like a cranium that you could open up and uh, that you could just download new information. Just shovel it in. I'd like that. A bit like the Matrix. I'd like to be able to sit in a chair and you plug into the back of my head kung fu.
0: That is not weird at all, Mark.
1: I know. so shall we talk about our topic for the day why don't we it's about health messages today isn't
0: it yes so um the person that i spoke to heather tricky works for decipher which is the development and evaluation of complex interventions for public health improvement um so basically (laughs) examining how um health messages are created and delivered and she works with a dr rachel brown at cardiff university and the article we were looking at was the one that they've just produced about the um
1: health messages about drinking in pregnancy yeah it's a tricky one i I, it's a tricky one isn't it you know throughout my career uh different health messages have been emphasized at different times you know whether it's edwina curry and salmonella in the eggs Mm -hmm. or, or nuts You know, don't eat nuts because you're more likely to get an allergy.
0: The eggs one is interesting, actually. I'm glad you mentioned that because how long is it now since um, the Food Standards Agency said it was actually quite safe to eat soft-boiled eggs? Yeah, a couple of years. Um, I I know it's relatively recent, but certainly I was saying it when I was still doing Introducing Solids workshops, and that's got to be a good two years ago, that the, the Food Standards Agency has lifted that, Recommendation not to, to eat soft boiled eggs. Yeah, pregnant women women are still telling me that they're not eating runny eggs.
1: I think that's because these messages take a while to seep down into popular culture.
0: But they shouldn't take you know, a while to seep down into midwifery.
1: Well, what, well, what, because because midwives aren't humans. Well,
0: no, because health their job is delivering health messages. They surely will be updated regularly.
1: Well, well i've been out of the nhs for a good few years now but we didn't have systematic updates uh particularly i mean we have yearly updates and some of my midwifery colleagues listening to this will be able to put me right and they should because i need it uh, you know you know maybe there are regular uh update messages put out but in my experience it wasn't something that was done systematically
0: that's quite concerning really isn't it I mean, if, if there are new oh. developments, then isn't that something...
1: Well, I, I, I think, yes. If Public Health England, or who is that body you were mentioning? Um, the Food Standards Agency. Yeah. If they, if they come to the point where they uh, issue guidance, we know they're, they're not the most impetuous bodies, are they? you know, they take a while before they issue guidance and it goes through a number of processes. So if these bodies are issuing uh, guidance, midwives and birth professionals generally should be updated as soon as is possible. Mm. I, I agree. But let's be honest, right? I mean, we're we going off top. No, we're not. No, we're not. When it, come, when it comes to vaping, right? For example, we've done a brilliant show on that. I enjoyed that one. When it comes to vaping, Public Health England have said, that vaping has a zero impact on the air quality of other people, right? Zero. Public Health England. Yet still, vaping is banned everywhere you can think of in public.
0: Well, that might not necessarily be because of the health impact. Maybe some people just don't want to breathe the smells that other people are emitting.
1: And that's fair. I get that. I mean, I totally get that. Um, And, you know, it's about having concern for other people's experience of breathing in, the the fragrance, but it's not going to have an impact on their health. Mm. The the other thing, Public Health England says that that vaping, for example, decreases the risk uh, in the context of smoking by 98%, and they say that's conservative, right? So we know those two things about vaping, but I can't tell you the amount of midwives and birth professionals. If you mention vaping as an option for a pregnant woman, if she's struggling to quit smoking, they go, oh, but we don't know the dangers yet.
0: And do we know them, do you
1: think? Well, no, of course we don't. Of course we don't know the long-term dangers yet, Karen. But we do know, according to Public Health England, pretty conservative, has to be said, it's small c., are telling us zero impact on air quality and reduces the harm in the context of smoking by ninety eight percent. So that's what we do know. So and I've looked after women who wouldn't drink alcohol, wouldn't even rub themselves all over with nuts, <laughs> but can't but struggle. I wouldn't rub myself, to, myself all over with
0: nuts, Mark.
1: Well, well, I might. It just depends who I'm with. <laughs> but, but, but but struggle completely to stop smoking yeah. you feel totally guilty guilty about it. So. I think the onus in that context, and we're talking about food and breastfeeding and all that sort of stuff, the onus in that context is to midwives to confront, and birth professionals, to confront their own prejudice about vaping and offer that as a, a solution to a woman that's struggling to give up smoking. Now, I'm not saying they should actively encourage people to start vaping, but we know that smoking causes the binding of carbon dioxide to the haemoglobin you know it has massive impacts on pregnancy vaping w- would reduce that enormously but often i'll say that to midwives or birth professionals and they go oh yes but we don't know the long-term implications no we don't you know there's no study no study's been done on the long-term implications of eating loads of bananas every day um yeah so be careful. <laughs> be careful on with calcium. that nana. <laughs> be careful with that nana because you don't know the long-term implications of that. How dare you recommend bananas to pregnant women?
0: So that's that. That's a, such a good example, not the bananas, the vaping, um, of what um, Heather and her colleague were researching because they had these four groups. One of whom was a group of midwives and they, they were exploring how the midwives understand and then pass on the message about alcohol and you can really apply that to the information about vaping because if it was very clear that the, the midwives in this study tended to prefer a, a very simple message and that's you know you can apply that to bed sharing as well can't you the, the message from health professionals lacks the nuance that allows parents to make their own decisions. It, it's more of a blanket Well, Don't know about that. Don't do that.
1: But to, I think humans find binary choices easier to make. The illusion that there are uh, just two choices is, is more comfortable. You know, when nuance enters in, it becomes a little bit confusing and we despise often the feeling of confusion. Of course, the other thing is, all right, so these midwives have got to give all, and birth professionals, got to give all this information in 15 minutes... Mm.
0: Yeah, and that's going to have a massive impact on how much discussion they can have about all these different things.
1: Of course it is. And then, and then what happens is their, their appointment time starts slipping. They get behind. They get stressed. They get reviewed by their manager. Of course they want a yes and no hmm. uh, approach to giving information. How how could how would it work otherwise, Karen? Well, quite. I'm not in
0: in disagreement with you. I'm thinking no, about all the, the the midwives and particularly the student midwives that we tend we interact with on so, social media who are really passionate about empowering women. And I'm thinking about the reality of that 15 minute booking an appointment where they've got to convey all this information in as helpful a way possible. There's a real mismatch
1: there yeah and and they've got evidence it so it ends up as a tick boxing exercise right mm.
0: well i can remember my booking in appointment the only things i can remember about it as the midwife dissuading me from having my baby at the birth center because um if it went wrong we'd be transferred to slough and then it would have slough on the birth certificate um that was the the argument she gave me for not using the birth center
1: so her own map of the world was hanging out.
2: Oh,
0: yeah, and, and her class prejudices. I think like, absolutely the Slough was uh-huh. an undesirable location to have on your birth certificate. What
1: nonsense! Yeah. And 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 all we're accusing her of is being human, right? I mean, the, the human being cannot operate outside their current prejudices. Yes, they can. And yes,
0: they absolutely can. They can recognise no, their prejudice can't. and they cannot say yeah, that. They can. ah.
1: Ah, that's a key point. That's the key point. They can recognize their prejudice. But just like cultural competence, you know, I don't know that it's a prejudice until I recognize it. And that's the challenge that we have fundamentally is, you see, I mean, to to quote Donald Rumsfeld, do you remember that bizarre quote when he said, uh, we know the things we know and there are things that we know that we don't know? You know, I don't know particle physics and I know I don't know it, but it's the things we don't know that we don't know that are running the show very often. So that midwife who is prejudicial against people that live in Slough, is she aware that she's being prejudiced and actively choosing to be? In my place, in, in my, from my perspective,
0: I find it quite difficult to, to be in her head thinking that that's an okay thing to say.
1: Okay, uh, let me test something out. Immunisations are dangerous. Right. Karen, how do you feel about How do you feel about? I disagree that? with it. I know you do. I know you do. And you have plenty of reasoned arguments, as do I, but you have plenty of reasoned arguments as to why you disagree with it. If I was to suggest to you that, that there might be some prejudice that work against people that, that don't agree with you you would deny it and you would say no I have logical reasons but I would I would hazard a guess that there's some prejudice against people that hold that views in your mind
0: but the difference is that you're not aware of if somebody said that to me in an antenatal class I wouldn't immediately yeah. tell them that they're stupid or you know I no, w- but
1: you would think you would you would think it right
0: right but I wouldn't be saying it I wouldn't be doing what the <laughs> midwife did and actually verbalizing it
1: I get that, but it would, if if we're always communicating and large amounts of what we convey is happening at an unconscious level, there's a sense in which whether you like it or not, they, th- there will be a difference in, in how you uh, communicate about immunizations and not being immunized but that's
0: my life all the time my entire job is talking to people who think that breastfeeding is a a bit weird and far too tiresome and probably painful and they definitely don't want to do it and no I I can absolutely I suppose it is different because I do understand where they're coming from but I my job is to keep my feelings about that inside and help them with their feelings about that by sharing information and, and all the other things that I do.
1: I get that. And, and uh, I'm talking about me, not you. And, and I will do my best to keep that on the inside. Yeah. Right. I will do my best. All I'm saying is our, our best w- will not stop that leaking out in some way. Whether it's muscle tone on the face, whether it's a particular body posture, whether it's a change in our language, the way we, the tone of our language, or the the rhythm and cadence of our language, what we really think will be seeping out, even if the words are politically on message,
0: mm, isn't it? I'm, I'm amused by the fact that um, the health message that we found ourselves discussing is whether or not one should have one slough on the birth certificate.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Everybody listening in slough, I'm sure it's a lovely place. We apologise. So it wasn't us. Please, and we didn't people... say anything about bombs falling <laughs> on you either. No, people should um, people should visit slough. It's all right. <laughs> this is getting to the heart of... Um... Decipher. Decipher, Lovely lovely acronym Super, I think, isn't it? because there is a deciphering job that needs to go on yeah. you know, to to crack the code I think the root of the word isn't it to decipher oh, yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: shall I tell you the other thing I can remember from my booking in appointment go she on told then. me to keep my legs together I thought that's a bit late for that now it was to do with getting out of the car and I think it was like a to do with um, pelvic girdle pain
1: Oh, oh, not bad advice Oh, eh? well, presumably, but I just found it amusing. I didn't really you, you understand put it, why it. You, you, you put it into a contraceptive context. I most certainly did.
0: <laughs>
1: oh! <laughs> it was a strange thing Pretty to funny. say. Keep your legs together. <laughs> What's the other thing they, are, they ask?
0: They're still asking this. Are you going to breastfeed?
1: Yeah, are you going to yeah, breastfeed? isn't
0: that an interesting way of conveying a health
1: message? It, it, but it does depend on the tona- intonation of the voice, right? But even just
0: saying, oh, you have a choice here.
1: Yes. Oh, I get it. So I, I get it. So you're saying the presuppositions inside that are suggesting that that's the only option? No, I think that the the supposition
0: in that is that you've, you've got two choices here. Which one would you like? And it's it, another one where it
1: just simply isn't that binary, is it? No. So how would, how would you have preferred to be asked that question? I don't think you need to ask that question. Well, that she does, he or she does, because they'll have a tick box In for case, feeding choice. that
0: what are your thoughts about feeding?
1: Nice. I like that. Back to the um, the interview. It's always going to be a massive challenge conveying health messages and balancing the risk to people not complying, inverted commas. mm you know, alcohol is a point in question, isn't it?
0: Yeah, well, isn't the universal health message to everybody, not just pregnant people, that no amount of alcohol is a safe amount of alcohol? But we routinely ignore that.
1: Yes, we apply. We say that applies to other people that are stupid. Mm, I can manage my own alcohol and be safe. Yeah, I like to tell myself I can do that. Mm, <laughs> especially after a few, I get better at it. Hey, and I get, <laughs> yeah, I mean, what. England will have either won the World Cup or not uh, when this uh, interview goes out Um, but I will be convinced I can manage my alcohol until after the game and then I'll know the truth
0: Well, yes, we shall see Actually, what what Heather says in the interview about our drinking culture is um, that 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 was quite an interesting reflective moment for me listening to her talking about that that the fact that you, you, you can't just not drink in Britain You can't? Because, well, if a woman doesn't drink, then the first question she's going to be asked is, is she pregnant? Yeah, that, yeah. So it, good it, point. it signals something. And you, you get yeah. put under a lot of pressure. I was out with um, some friends in London a couple of weekends ago. Um, it was the, the um, weekend of the first England match, I think, in fact. Um, and we were in the pub. And one of the people said, right, I've got to go now, got to meet a friend. And. Another person said, no, you can't go. You've got to have another drink. I'll buy you another drink. Right, I'm going to buy you another drink right now. And put masses of pressure on him to stay and have another beer, even though he'd said he didn't want to. And it was quite interesting to watch that and think, this is making me quite uncomfortable.
1: Yeah, I I, I do get that from the kind of cultural pressure. Of course, it is the illusion. There is an illusion at work that someone else is actually causing my emotional responses and behaviour. I mean, that's very, that's very rarely the case, isn't it? Unless I'm being handcuffed and drawn away or force-fed or tube-fed a beer. Ultimately, the locus of control is inside me unless I feel otherwise. Yeah. So, for example, my son was upset with me the other day. He went upstairs and he was texting. He was messaging me on his iPod from upstairs about how upset he was with me and that. And and then he did a voice... Um, Message and he said, "Dad, you've made me angry." Hmm. So I gave him a voice message back. Doris when did I climb inside your body and make you feel anything?" And he just he just sent a, a message back. "Dad, shut up."
0: <laughs> <laughs> Good, I'm right there with you. Are you saying that <laughs> yeah, because no. I used the phrase "This is making me feel uncomfortable"?
1: No, not at all. No, that, uh, although you did say that, but yeah. that's not why I'm saying it. I, I'm saying. Actually, in the real physical world, right, very rarely do people make us do things.
0: Hmm, I don't know whether I'm in agreement with that. I'm Because I'm thinking about this this person who's, who really, really wanted to leave. And in the end did leave because they'd run out of his beer.
1: Um... Yeah, but the, the point being, what was stopping him just saying, no, thank you, well social I'm pressure gonna... You
0: can't deny that
1: social yeah, pressure but, affects people well, yeah, I, No but when have you tripped over sh- Social pressure in the street But that doesn't make it not a thing that, it, that affects No people. It, is, it, it is a thing I'm not saying it's, it, it's a It has a real world effect But, but ultimately No one's making anyone do anything
0: Yes it, in the end It's his decision but there's a huge Influence on his decision coming from His friend putting pressure on him
1: yeah, of course. And then when he has too many uh, and gets stopped drink driving um, and he stands up in court and says, you know, my friends made me do it. The court will go, oh, yeah, you're right. Social pressure is a real thing. Oh, God, he can't go to prison for that. No, I
0: know. I'm not saying that he, he was, wasn't was his responsibility and, and the guy could buy him a drink and he simply not drink it. But
1: I know I'm parodying on purpose. Because no but that's a
0: good point you're saying that at the end of the day it is his responsibility course but it i don't is. think because... i don't think i agree with you that that he could simply make the free choice to walk away he could of course he could make the free choice to walk away but it was hard for him to do that because of the social pressure
1: no disagreement there i i'm just saying the court recognises the plain yeah. the plain tr- the plain truth is that you know m- mitigation in terms of social pressure doesn't act as a defense
0: how interesting do you think we should listen to this interview
1: i think it's time
0: i think so so i'm with heather tricky who is a research associate with decipher which is fill it in for me heather
2: which is a centre to look at um, evaluation of complex uh, public health interventions. Um, and it's based at Cardiff University. And the research that I'm going to be talking about with uh, you today is uh, was done by Rachel Brown and myself. And this is research about
0: the health messages that are communicated to women about drinking alcohol during pregnancy.
2: That's right. So we did a um, qualitative study which um, involved focus groups with policy makers, with midwives, with antenatal teachers and with parents about their experiences of um, receiving or communicating the current advice on, um, uh, well, the abstinence message around drinking while either expecting a baby or while pregnant. The, The idea really was to look at the extent to which there were common themes coming out of those focus groups in terms of maybe challenges around communicating uh, an abstinence message or around receiving an abstinence message for drinking in pregnancy. What sort of challenges did they tell you about? Um, Well, so the guidance is based on an evidence review and there's good evidence um, that alcohol um, in pregnancy is harmful when it's at high levels of drinking. Um, and uh, leading to uh, increased chance of stillbirth, of miscarriage and of uh, fetal alcohol syndrome. Um, It's also associated with um, fetal alcohol spectrum disorders. The evidence for harm um, for drinking at lower levels is um, described in the guidance as elusive, which means that the evidence team couldn't rule out the possibility that um that drinking at low levels by which i mean sort of one to two units a week might be harmful because they couldn't find a cut-off point um below which you know they could say it was safe yeah um but they couldn't find any epidemiological evidence to say that there was harm from drinking low levels so there's evidence there's there isn't evidence of harm but there equally isn't evidence of no harm that's right. So they, so what they did was they said that we're going to apply a precautionary principle, which is basically a way of saying we're going to say we're going to give a message that's a sort of better safe than sorry message, and we're going to say that you know your best bet if you want to eliminate um, any risk of harm to the baby is not to drink at all, um, either w- while planning a pregnancy or or when pregnant. Um, so that was that was the message that was devised. Now the guidance on drinking in pregnancy formed part of uh, wider general population guidance on drinking generally. So it was sort of one section within that guidance. And whereas the kind of rest of the guidance was based on a sort of rights-based approach, as in, here's the evidence, this is what we recommend, make your own decisions. There was a kind of slight shift in the principles underpinning the guidance for pregnancy which is about saying we're going to apply this precautionary principle and we're going to just say you know don't it's you're better off safe than sorry so one of the things we were looking at was how people are communicating and receiving that precautionary principle nobody can make you not drink or not or or drink but what what the message used to be was um, if you're going to drink only drink a certain amount. And they've revised that back down and strengthened it and just said, you know, just don't drink. And what wasn't clear, particularly in the guidance, was why they had chosen to apply that principle differently. So, you know, you can make all kinds of assumptions about why that decision might have been made. Um, For example, the most obvious one being a sort of desire to uh, protect a a baby who couldn't protect uh, itself. uh, But it's not clear that that's why that um, precautionary principle was chosen. And what we found in our research was that people came up with all kinds of rationales for why a precautionary principle had been employed. Um, So without being explicit about why they decided to to frame the evidence in a particular way and to give a particular message without being explicit about why they would chosen to go down this precautionary route, it leaves a sort of vacuum in which people impose their own interpretations So we had people who thought that maybe it was for people who didn't understand complex information and it wasn't really meant for them. Mm. had people who thought that um, it was the state's responsibility to intervene and to protect the rights of the unborn baby. Um, We thought we had you know so we had people who thought well actually perhaps this is about finding a good window to intervene because um, uh, people want to change their behaviour during pregnancy and perhaps if we give them a strong message then they will uh, change their lifestyle in all kinds of ways in a more permanent fashion so perhaps if we can get them to abstain now then perhaps they won't drink when their children are little.
0: So on the basis of the theory that people are more receptive- to learning in
2: that time that's right so this idea of a teachable moment so in the absence of a clear rationale for giving for taking a precautionary approach what we found was that people come up with their own reasons so another one was well people you know women aren't capable of knowing how much they've drunk. i mean not just women to just in general we don't know what a unit looks like and so actually it's it's simpler to just say don't than to leave people to make the mistakes from midwifery point of view, from the people, the the midwives we spoke to, there was a sense in which it's just easier to give a clear message that actually telling somebody not to do something or, you know, do this and don't do that, it's much more congruent with some of the other messages that that are given around smoking or shellfish or whatever. Um, And that uh, that this is an easier message to give, particularly given the time frame for some antenatal appointments, um, and it's just a clearer message for people to receive. So it just all felt uh, it feels a little bit muddy in terms of um, that uh, that rationale. and one of the recommendations that we made from our research was that you know when we're using a precautionary principle, particularly when we're using a precautionary principle um, to uh, for pregnant women, then we need to communicate why we're using that principle so that people can see that the, you know, the rationale is, you know this, uh, rather than kind of leaving people free to sort of impose all their sort of own hmm. rationale. Because
0: presumably, if people are making up their own rationale, then they're also making it um, making exceptions for themselves.
2: Absolutely. And so we found that, which is that we, we had people sort of saying, well, I think really this is for women who aren't like me, who can't interpret a message sensibly, um, but I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm going to uh, interpret it in this way. But I think the problem with that is that that's OK if you knew you were being given a precautionary principle. But when what m- what most people are just getting is the abstinence message, and then when they find that that's not based on a, a firm Uh, evidence of harm, then that begins to undermine their confidence in this guidance and potentially in other guidance that they're being given at the same time. So although it might feel very clear, you know, and and it might feel helpful to be given a very clear message, actually it can be very muddying um, if people aren't given access to um, the strength of the evidence underpinning that particular piece of guidance.
0: So, did you come up with recommendations about how it would be better to communicate this message?
2: One of the uh, recommendations we made was that actually it would be helpful because some people do like a very clear message, and not every, and, and so and it can, and it is helpful um, to be able to give a one line. This is what we recommend, but that we should be um, layering our exp- uh, providing opportunities for people to layer their explanations, so that we should, as well as being as giving people you know, whatever the top line message is, we should be giving people the opportunity to explore the evidence under this and the strengths and understand the strengths of the evidence under this and perhaps to understand the controversies around the evidence under this, so that people can go to a depth that suits their needs, rather than assuming that everybody of sort of one size fits all clear message is actually doing the job for everybody. So that was our recommendation around um communication and there's a piece of work really that needs to be done on how do we respectfully give people that message without unraveling all the work that the evidence review team has done which is you know to it, you know the precautionary principle is 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 not um, in itself wrong evidence lack of evidence of harm doesn't mean absence of harm it's actually you know quite difficult to gather from observational data you know that kind of evidence and it takes a long time and you need the right studies and they need to be of the right quality and if that evidence doesn't exist then you the fact that it doesn't exist doesn't necessarily mean that there isn't harm being done hmm. so somehow communicating that to people as well would be good but i guess what we're saying is that the amount of confusion and individual level interpretation that was going on around this and the potential for public health guidance to be rejected or undermined because people feel sort of tricked I guess means that perhaps there is a role for looking at how we can respectfully communicate more complex public health messages to parents.
0: Right so this as a sort of model for other things that you might need to
2: inform people about. That's right. So we're not just talking about alcohol. We're talking about a whole load of different um, messages, you know, smoking or what you eat or all. And parenting stuff as well. Yes. And sort of much wider than that, really. So all the various risks. So this idea that that we can live completely risk -free, free lives. It's one that that it's very easy to buy into because, of course, we all want to do the very, very best. But actually, you know, our, our capacity to do the very best is limited by our context and by the number of things we can reasonably manage at any reasonable time. And by the fact that we're all just trying to live lives in our existing culture as ordinary human beings and that we will have different ways of doing that, depending on our personality, values, context, and so on. So, you know, giving people capacity to sort of think more in a more complex way about some of these issues would actually potentially give people, um, just allow that, that conversation between a public health message and the individual receiving it to be more responsive to individuals' needs. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the other thing that, that about, about this um, message that we found was that there is a sort of poor interaction with the reality of pregnancy planning. So we have in this country um, about a third of pregnancies are properly, properly planned. And then, you know, a third are really not planned at all. And most of, you know, another third are sort of somewhere in the middle. Now, the guidance is to abstain from drinking in the period leading up to pregnancy and when pregnant. And of course, for many, you know, given that we live in a culture where social drinking is absolutely the norm, it means that many women do drink in pregnancy depending on which surveys you look at are between sort of 40 percent and 75 percent of women drink something during pregnancy Mm -hmm. which means that most people are not complying with this abstinence message not not because they don't want to particularly but actually because they didn't even know they were pregnant and there's a danger that a piece of guidance around alcohol in pregnancy sort of gets into a sort of mission creep and becomes a piece of guidance around pregnancy planning, which is a much, much more complex issue. And uh, the idea, for example, that one shouldn't be pregnant if one hasn't already given up alcohol, um, it's just not realistic to enact in our culture. So within the guidance, we have a kind of bizarre, well, bizarre... um, A way of coping with this, I suppose, which is to say, um, well, look, we are advising you to abstain. But, um, you know, if you have had a drink, try not to worry about it too much. But this is set against a message, which is there is risk of serious harm if you have drunk, which leaves, leaves people in a difficult position. And it leaves the people communicating the guidance in a difficult position.
0: Yeah, I'm just looking at the DrinkAware website, which starts yeah. with the message quite strongly. If a woman drinks alcohol during her pregnancy, it can have serious consequences on her baby's growth and development. Yeah. talks about fetal alcohol syndrome and then a little bit further down says if you didn't know you were pregnant and you drank alcohol during early pregnancy, don't panic. Just yes. because you may have drunk does not necessarily mean that your unborn baby has been harmed. And those sound like completely contradictory messages to me. That's
2: right. And, and you know, in a way, it's a bind, isn't it? Because if you are trying to say, look, there is some risk, then, um, you know, to then go into sort of reassurance mode and say, well, look, it probably didn't mean you is, is, is contradictory. Hmm. Um, but the idea that you will tell somebody that there's a risk of serious harm and then tell them not to worry about it um, is a problem. And, and you know, uh, organisations like Bpass and what in, in some of the, the uh, focus groups that we were doing, NCT mentioned as well, the, the calls to helplines from women who are concerned that they have drunk early on in pregnancy are increasing because people are unsure how to interpret this guidance and also what our research found is that some midwives are unsure how to give that message they want to be put in a position of falsely reassuring so some numbers around this more clarity about the lack of clarity you know would help women to feel that they were sort of partners in in that sort of making sense of what the evidence the evidence is and what the evidence isn't rather than this just oh my goodness you may have done something terrible but don't worry about it you know our groups were split for policymakers, midwives antenatal teachers and parents but actually across all four of those groups we had individuals who you know who were who had been concerned that they had drunk unwittingly you know, in early pregnancy, mm-hmm. including you know people who'd gone through IVF. So even in the most planned cases, we just live in a society where drinking is so incredibly normal that uh, it, the likelihood that you will drink when planning a pregnancy or in early pregnancy is very high. And of course, that's also the time when you're most likely to drink heavily because you don't know you're pregnant. You know, most women who do drink in pregnancy or who choose to drink once they know they're pregnant will drink really quite small amounts you know you're more likely to do the heavy drinking early on and the guidance just doesn't quite give people not this you know it's not the problem with the guidance because again that's sort of based on the evidence review but the communication strategy beyond the guidance doesn't quite give either the people giving that message or the people receiving it um, a satisfactory way to uh, think about how to take that forward at the present.
0: Was there any one particular group that had difficulty with getting their heads around the
2: complex message? I would say that you know, the the feeling from the midwife group that we spoke to was that being very clear was helpful and that partly that's about time and partly that's about a style of message giving that's sort of grown up over many decades, which is that we, you know, we just give women a list of things that they, you know, perhaps should and perhaps shouldn't do. I mean, interestingly, um, there's also this move in um, antenatal cons- consultations to have sort of more meaningful conversations. Now, that is in huge tension with the amount of time mm. that's that midwives have to have those conversations. So to more meaningful individualized conversations would you know fit very well with a kind of more nuanced approach to giving evidence to a degree that would suit the individual in front of you. But the difficulty with leaving that judgment all the way down all the way to midwives is that you know, a, they don't have the time. and b, of course, like everybody, you're uh, at risk of making your own personal judgments about who, can and can't receive what sorts of information Mm. so having some way of allowing people to access an understanding of the the evidence behind different sorts of guidance might um, just empower parents themselves to think about these things uh, in a way that's sort of more easy to integrate with their own experiences the other reason that um, some of this guidance is sort of difficult to enact is because as I said we do live in a culture of social drinking Um, and there is a question about whether and to what extent you know pregnant women or women planning a pregnancy are necessarily the appropriate target for a don't drink in pregnancy message one of the things we found was that some of the women we spoke to found it very difficult to not drink for example if their partners weren't drinking so you know perhaps there's room there for uh, a message that says look you know whatever your partner is doing perhaps you need to kind of uh, respect and affirm that decision so perhaps there's a message around if your partner's not drinking perhaps that doesn't mean you get to drink her share or she becomes the designated driver does that make sense I and mean, that's culturally embedded as well you know if you're going out with a friend and she's not drinking then perhaps you could not drink too it's it's important that we don't get into a mechanism that's around sort of other people policing that woman's behavior but perhaps there's something around affirming and a supporting. decision affirming and a, supporting yeah. a decision to you to to do something different. And that of course becomes easier, the more that, you know, just making decisions to abstain from drinking for a certain amount of time becomes normalized. So, you know, at the moment, it's such a strong signifier. If a woman is not drinking, it's almost the sort of first question is, is she pregnant? Um, And that's can be very inconvenient to women. Women don't necessarily want to disclose a pregnancy early on and it can make it quite difficult in terms of, you know, going out and about and going out for work drinks and so on you don't necessarily want your colleagues knowing that either you're planning a pregnancy or that you are expecting a baby but if we lived in a culture where it was just more normal for people to say oh do you know what i'm not drinking this month then you we don't have to ask why people aren't doing it or we don't have to make assumptions so there is it may be that we the way to tackle uh, the issue of uh harm from drinking in pregnancy is to you know, develop a society in which not drinking becomes more normalised. That's a much bigger project. Yes, it certainly <laughs> is. But, it, but, it, but um, it, it's not uh, necessarily the right thing to do the easy thing if the easy thing isn't working. Mm. So, yes. I mean, there is strong epidemiological evidence that cultures that um, societies which drink more in general have higher levels of FASD. Also, fetal alcohol syndrome. So, you know that that's where the level of correlation is, because you know, drink is just so much more prevalent and so much more part of our society.
0: Yeah, I'm trying to imagine a a a sort of campaign that that gives that public health message successfully.
2: I guess in a way we're seeing things like you know, don't drink Januarys and that kind of thing. I mean, just giving people permission not to drink would make it easier for women who are planning a pregnancy or in the early stages of pregnancy to decide not to without having to kind of go into why. But, you know, equally sort of perhaps something around um, if, if you want to bring it down to the level of the couple or level of the social network, then just, you know, that thing about supporting other people with their decisions as evidence from, you know, if you're trying to lose weight, if your partner, you know, is continuing to eat you know, huge takeaways in front of you, then you're less likely to be able to maintain your own decision yeah. around how you lose weight. If you want to do some exercise and having somebody to do exercise with you helps. So, you know, if you do decide that you're going to stop drinking because you're planning a baby or, 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 or pregnant, then it can be helpful if your partner is supportive of you in that, in, in, enacting the same behaviour. Yeah, I mean, it's just worth thinking it about whether why we always assume that um, the way to resolve um, a public health problem that relates to pregnancy is to target our message to the pregnant woman, mm. um, which is just something that's worth thinking about. Um, and the other thing which we said was that um, you know that guidance is itself an intervention, um, and that it's, you know, it's good practice if you're doing a public health intervention to theorize how you expect that intervention to make a difference. So if you're going to put out an abstinence message, what do you expect the behavior change to be? How will you know it's been successful? And how do you expect that behavior change to happen? And one of the uh, issues that we talked about earlier was this idea of social shaming. So are you expecting women to be socially shamed by putting out this abstinence message. Is that part of the theory? I mean, I think most public health specialists would say, no, that wasn't the intention. The intention is for women to, you know, look at the advice and come to their own decision but it's important to know what mechanisms you do and don't intend when you develop an intervention and what outcomes you expect and that perhaps there's something around when you develop a piece of guidance thinking of it as a public health intervention in that way and understanding what the theory is and then you can test you know what is that theory operating or are there any iatrogenic effects or you know unwanted um effects or unwanted mechanisms that are also operating
0: yeah so the unintended consequences are quite broad in, yeah yeah the, also I'm thinking about the kind of any period of abstinence from drinking is usually um, involves looking
2: forward to the bit where you can have a drink
0: yes and so yes.
2: It, it's it's
0: almost encouraging
2: more drinking I mean you would need to do a much bigger sample than we did to really look at the uh, the impact of, of the guidance on you know at a, the at a level of epidemiological epidemiology and and uh, population but certainly within the people that we spoke to uh, it wasn't being considered as a sort of teachable moment it wasn't that this was a something they were going to try which would then you know continue after the children were born i mean people talked about bottles of champagne in the fridge for once the baby was born and so mm. on i mean another area was yeah, that it, sometimes the guidance doesn't address what people most want to know so a lot of the um parents that we spoke to said they really would have liked a bit more information about um drinking while breastfeeding because that guidance can be a little bit confusing and that that could have been enfolded into this guidance in some way yeah but but having said that of course they didn't want to hear that they shouldn't drink while breastfeeding <laughs> they wanted to be reassured that they could uh, for exactly that reason you said which is you know sometimes the idea of abstinence is because it's you know it's it's part of our social culture to to drink for a lot of for a lot of women in the uk not, not all women not all women in all communities but broadly social drinking is quite normal so uh, deciding not to drink for many women does involve social loss and as you say um there's a sense in which people will tolerate that social loss for a period um but but not sort of, you know, forever. And and the idea that you might sort of stop drinking during pregnancy is one thing. The idea that you would then stop drinking all the time you were breastfeeding a baby is something quite different. And, of course, you know, you could extend that to the whole of parenthood and so on. So, yeah. you know, it's there. It's, yeah. Uh, <laughs> <and> all- <laughs> to your entire fertile years so it's you know it is important that we uh we sort of recognize that uh social context for uh people making quite sort of dramatic decisions about mm-hmm. how they're going to change their lifestyle sometimes yeah wow there's so much more to do on this there is yes yeah are you going to get to do it we're going to we're looking at different research projects at the moment i think the the idea of considering uh how people in one social network can support and affirm various decisions around um health behaviors in pregnancy is useful so that we don't you know to get away from this idea that just because we're talking about pregnancy that the subject of the intervention should be the pregnant woman i mean what we know from all kinds of you know public health interventions is that actually if you want to divide you want to bring about some kind of behavior change you need to operate on all kinds of levels you need to operate on the level of you know family and social network and also on the level of the wider context and just you know that then frees up the woman to make a choice in a context in which that choice becomes possible. Hmm. That's been really interesting to talk to you about
0: this and one thing I notice with other things that you've written that I've read is um, that you you always take that broad view of looking at the context in which women make decisions.
2: I like to explore the gap between what public health specialists are trying to do which is to uh, create conditions for a more healthy society and you know the decision-making space of parents, and particularly, I guess, mothers, who are sort of uh, negotiating those messages. Um, And the, you know, it's it's often seen as a a sort of battle line, and it needn't be. It could simply be about, you know, being much more um, uh, open and honest about what the evidence does and doesn't say, um, and much more sort of giving much more, much more of a dialogue, I guess, with parents about what that says and actually creating conditions in which people are going to find it easier to follow the advice that, that, that from a public health point of view seems sensible so um you know we have we've discussed before i think you and i um with infant feeding if you want to create the conditions in which people make decisions to breastfeed that doesn't necessarily need to be about telling women to breastfeed mm. that can- Be about creating an environment in which the support is there for people to enact that decision, and you know, with infant feeding, that's the major problem. Yeah,
0: that that I think is possibly a conversation for another time.
2: Yes, but but I guess I'm making the parallel. Yeah, that there's that's not just infant feeding; that's a lot of issues. Where actually, if you want people to. if you if you've come to a conclusion on the basis of the evidence that you know uh, at population level we would all be healthier if fewer people did this then you know if you're trying to shift your population behavior it doesn't have to be just about telling uh individual pregnant women to do things Hmm. it can be about um changing the context in which those decisions are made
0: yeah so thank you it's been really nice to talk to you
2: you too okay
1: definitely food for thought definitely so uh, with that in mind let's look at what's in the news and I I knew it Karen mm-hmm. if if you wean babies sooner they would sleep better you knew it did you I knew that
0: they would sleep by what is it at 11 minutes or 15 minutes it's something more per night
1: yeah yeah and of course you know in the old days my mum would put kind of baby rice in the milk in order to make sure that I slept longer. That's what she told me anyway. I blame her, of course, because I'm probably a beast because of it. Well, I'm
0: recognising my prejudice about um, putting
1: (laughs) cereal and baby (laughs) rice into milk. I am teasing, of course, because I I, I definitely want to hear your views on this. I was rang by London Broadcasting Company yesterday, LBC, and asked to go on their programme about this. Yeah, and I I declined. I said it's outside of my area of uh, specialty.
0: Ah, they've rung me before. I wonder who they got instead.
1: I actually said to them, "You need a health visitor or 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 someone like that." Or Amy Brown would have been Amy the Brown person would have been go bloody to. spot on, wouldn't it? I, yeah, well, I she's think...
0: already written about it, hasn't she?
1: Well, I was yeah, I was in the car. I was on a hands free, and my wife was in a hurry to get to Primark. So that's my. Uh, <laughs> Wife... That. I'm recognising
0: my prejudices about Primark. Primark. Yeah. Um, yeah. We should say we're talking about the news um, article yesterday featuring some research. And the headline I've got here on the BBC News is babies given solid food sooner, sleep better. And this is a study in JAMA paediatrics. Is that what we call it? I, don't I guess.
1: Know. Go on then. Tell me a, a, your thoughts on the study.
0: Right, so this is a randomised clinical trial by Perkin, Banson and Logan et al. And they studied 1,303 three-month-old infants randomised to early solids introduction versus exclusive breastfeeding. Um, and that's fascinating for a start because that means they found, you know, over 500 babies exclusively breastfed for six months or at least they were in the intention to exclusively breastfeed for six months uh, and i haven't seen um whether their table actually shows but i would be very surprised if it did those babies actually being exclusively breastfed to six months yeah no so yeah. it's already the water is muddy to start with of course how it's... the hell sorry sorry Martin, on now. how did they get ethical approval to do well, this
1: that was my next question how, in, in the light of existing evidence, did they get
0: ethical approval? There's good evidence that early solids has a health effect and introducing formula early has, has a, an yeah. effect on babies' health. So how, how did they go to an ethics committee and say, but it's okay because we'll be able to show that babies fed solids before their gut is ready will sleep for 11 minutes longer per night?
1: Yeah, it will shorten their life, but you'll get more sleep. Better
0: sleep was defined by the parents.
1: We always pick holes in design, but they deserve it when they're when the design is poor, don't they?
0: Well, it's not just the design, but this entire thing just fills me with concern. Tell me about
1: the, the, your concern.
0: The I I don't know the the philosophy behind it that that it's it's good to cure the sleeping patterns of newborn babies. Yeah. Which. Yeah seem to me biologically normal and and yeah. appropriate yeah. the fact that a baby wakes
1: frequently i know that's difficult for parents yeah well none of this but, stuff exists in a vacuum does it you know these parents yeah. are living busy lives
0: but that doesn't mean their baby needs to be fixed by I doing something that might work in the short term but could have long-term you know repercussions yeah if you read maureen minchin's work about the early introduction of formula yeah that's a, that's you know three great big tomes worth of reason not to do this study
1: Absolutely 50 quid's worth of book
0: And then the, what the message this is sending to parents that your your babies who wake up um in the night are in some way broken and need to be mended Yeah and yeah, that means I... you've got to compromise breastfeeding in order to make them sleep longer Yeah
1: yeah I I wonder how the formula companies covertly sponsored this research.
0: Yeah, that was the first thing I looked at, and I couldn't see anything obvious. No,
1: it will be hidden if if it's there Mm. at all. Yeah. Uh, Because I think that's the way they work, he says in a conspiratorial voice. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I thought we're at that point where we talk about inspiration. Yeah. What's inspired you? this month okay. so I've got something
0: to tell you about which is um, a, a video, it's about an hour long of a stand up routine by a comic called um, Hannah Gadsby oh. and it's it's called Nanette and she is she's Tasmanian and she's gay and she's a feminist and if you watch this you will it, it is going to make you cry
1: cool, I'm going to watch it
0: which is not what it, that, you necessarily want from stand-up comedy, but that is what will uh, happen. It, I, I I want everybody, if you don't watch this, you're not allowed to listen to any more broadcast.
1: Did you hear that out there? If you do not watch this, you are banned. <laughs> <laughs> so why did it inspire you? You haven't told us.
0: I kind of don't want to. I, I oh, think right. that it's something that's... You know, I, I watched it not knowing what to expect, but having had it recommended by several people who I respect and um thought, Well, everyone's talking about this, I wanna know what it's all about and I watched it and it starts off quite funny. She's a yeah. good stand up. She's explaining her process some of the time and that's that's quite cool and, and interesting stuff. But she is angry about the world and what she says is very moving and it it certainly makes you think um but it's not funny by the end of it
1: i'm gonna watch it straight after we've recorded this so
0: it's it's on netflix i think so thank you for that that's all right what how about you uh
1: it's a netflix series and it's called sense eight and it it it, it's weird and if you if you don't if you, you know if you have sensibilities about watching sex and stuff like that don't watch it Because there are sex scenes in it. But it's exploring uh, a Jungian idea of cosmic consciousness. Uh, Not just a Jungian idea, but a chap called Rupert Sheldrake, who's a PhD, who has a theory that he calls morphic resonance. And... um, what do I mean by that? So, you know, most materialists would say that consciousness is an epiphenomena of the brain. So consciousness is a product of brain mechanisms. But uh, we don't really know the source of consciousness. Science doesn't really know yet the source of consciousness. And it may not be an epiphenomena of the brain. It might be beyond uh, the brain. Anyway, uh, Sensei explores that in a drama over a load of series. And the idea, I'm not going to say too much, You and you're not banned if you don't watch this, by the way, only the stand-up, um, a group of people all over the world suddenly gain access to each other's thinking processes and life. As they start to get insights into these other people's lives, it starts impacting theirs. And of course, there's a big narrative and a conspiracy and there's you know all kinds of stuff going on. But I found it totally inspiring. At the end of it, I wept and wept and wept. But uh, yeah, that inspired me.
0: There you go then. We've got two. Um, I've just published them, so people can have a look. Cool. Tell us what you think. Um, Facebook, Twitter. Um, and we also need to thank our patrons.
1: Shout out to the patrons. Come on.
0: Thank you to everybody on this list. Emma's Vike. Maddie McMahon, Francesca Stitch, Becky Talbot, David Foxwell, Abigail Harris, Catherine Hart, Mary Furman, Sophie Messenger, Alex Cass, Laura. Mark Harris, Jamie and Bev, Nikki Mather, Megan Stevenson, Emma Spillane, Chris Manners Lily, Stacey Painter, Natalie Thomas, Katie Lockie, Helen Knox, Kate Shepherd, Rebecca Mandalia, Rachel Plachinski, Laura Welding, Nina. F- I can't even pronounce that, Nina. I'm sorry. You will have to tell us how to do it. Um, Nikki yeah. Wooderson, Lucy Atkinson, and Keely Bryan. Thanks, everybody. Some of those wow. are. People who have already received badges, and we want to see your photos. If you would like to Facebook or tweet your pictures of you wearing your badges, and the t shirts will be on their way soon, and the books.
1: Yeah, the books, I've got books going out today fantastic and uh, t-shirts i shan't update you on the saga but by the end of next week i should have them excellent
0: good thank you for that um, on our next episode we're talking about induction we've got rachel reed who has a book out on that subject um, um and, and that's all for today
1: you can get in contact with us at facebook.com slash and at on twitter i think you've already said all this haven't you no if, if you're listening on itunes pause and go to iTunes and leave us a review. Uh, a, a why review. not leave us? Why not leave us a five-star review? That would be nice. That'd be great. And of course, you can get us at the Patreon page, which is
0: patreoncom sprodcast for all your t-shirt and badge needs.
1: Oh, and just one last thing: we've got our interview on there, and there is an hour and a half long video of me having a conversation with Dennis Walsh in his front room talking about his life in midwifery his research his radical daughters that defaced public signs because of their feminism um, it's really an interview not to miss anyway i think that's about that's about enough in it karen
0: yeah that's enough um we'll talk to you next month bye bye Bye. you've been listening to Sproadcast with karen hall and mark harris the news we've been discussing is on our facebook page facebook.com slash And don't forget you can buy great books from PinterandMartin.com using the discount code SPROGCAST at the checkout.